You are listening to the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. On today's show, we have two very different perspectives on the world. Later, I speak with Professor Ned Lazarus, who is a conflict resolution scholar currently at George Washington University, who has conducted evaluative studies of peace-building initiatives relating to the Israel-Palestine dispute. But first up, we will hear from Mort Klein, the national president of the Zionist Organization of America, the oldest pro-Israel group in the US. He is a member of the National Council of APAC. He is widely regarded as one of the leading Jewish activists in the United States. The Zionist Organization of America has criticized what it feels are some alarming, harmful aspects of the Biden administration's just-released national strategy to counter anti-Semitism. And Mort Klein explains. I welcome back Mort Klein, National President of the Zionist Organization of America, the oldest uh, Zionist organization in America, I believe, founded in 1897. I welcome you back to the Israel Connection on JEA Community Radio, coming to you from Melbourne, Australia. It's great to be with you, and uh, thank you for having me, and I'm very happy to speak uh, to your Australian Jewish and non-Jewish audience. Good to have you, and uh, you don't have to apologise like you did last time you spoke to me, uh, Mort, about not ever having visited Australia. Although you do have a daughter who studied in Australia. She studied at the University of Melbourne, but I have never been there, and I, a number of people have said they were going to invite me to speak, but they never did. All right, well, there, there are some organisations here I think uh, should be interested in you. I, I don't know if you have any... Uh, connections uh, at all with any of the Zionist organizations here in Australia? Does that happen? I don't. No, I don't. All right, well, they, uh, they certainly should be aware of you uh, since uh, Zionism is their agenda as well. Uh, sometimes they tread the fine line, uh, one might say, as you would probably agree with other Zionist organizations that say they are Zionist. Yep. But anyway, let's get to the point of what we're talking about today. Uh, Late last week, uh, the Biden administration announced the first ever U.S. national strategy to counter anti-Semitism, the most ambitious comprehensive effort in U.S. history to counter anti-Semitism, it's been called out as. And just a little brief on this, uh, the national strategy to counter anti-Semitism outlines a whole-of-society approach organized in four pillars of action that address key themes and threats raised by over 1,000 diverse stakeholders across the Jewish community and beyond. The strategy includes over 100 meaningful action actions government agencies will take to increase understanding of anti-Semitism and its threat to American democracy, protect Jewish institutions and communities, reverse the normalization of anti-Semitism, and build cross-community solidarity. The strategy also includes over 100 calls to action for Congress, state and local governments, tech companies, and others to counter anti-Semitism. Now, that all sounds really great, doesn't it, on the surface, Mort? But uh, many leaders across your country uh, have been praising uh, the president's U.S. national strategy to counter anti-Semitism, but you aren't. Every significant Jewish organization has profusely praised this dangerous policy that President Biden has just imposed on us. The fact that the Council on American-Islamic Relations, CARE, the Hamas Front Group, and other radical anti-Israel groups like J Street, if not now, Ben the Ark, have profusely praised this plan, really gives an indication of how problematic this plan is. It endangers Jews. 
This plan will make it much more difficult to fight BDS on campuses and elsewhere, more difficult to condemn Jew haters like Congresswomen Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and Betty McCollum. Why do I say that? Every major group pleaded and urged Biden to adopt solely, singularly, the IRA definition of, of anti-Semitism. It's a superb, comprehensive definition. So what did uh, President Biden do under pressure from far extreme left-wing anti-Israel groups? One time he mentioned IRA and he said, we have embraced it. He didn't say, I support it now. We have in the past embraced it. Then he said, nevertheless, we welcome and appreciate as a valuable tool, the Nexus and JDA definitions. The definition of Nexus, JDA, and other such organizations say, if you oppose Israel's existence as a Jewish state, that's not anti-Semitism. If you treat Israel differently for similar issues than other organizations, than other uh, countries, that's not anti-Semitism. If you single out Israel, but no one else on issues, that's not anti-Semitism. Meaning that Omar and Tlaib and such congresswomen who oppose Israel's very existence, I now can't go and say they're anti-Semites to have a stronger argument against them. If students on campus are fighting for BDS to boycott, divest, and sanction Israel, that's not under this, these other definitions, anti-Semitism. Remember, Biden said these other definitions are a valuable tool for us in, in fighting anti-Semitism. When Israel is condemned for alleged human rights abuses, alleged, but they ignore human rights abuses, real ones by China, Russia, Iran, or the Palestinian Authority, who pays Arabs' lifetime pensions to murder Jews. When you only condemn Israel for their alleged human rights violations, but ignore the others, that's called anti-Semitism. In addition, he only talks about white supremacy as anti-Semitic. He doesn't mention the more serious problems of Islamic anti-Semitism. ADL themselves have shown in their polls, half of the Muslims in the world are anti-Semitic. Half. And when you look at the Muslims in the Middle East, 75 to 95 percent of the Muslims in the Middle East are anti-Semitic. This is the ADL's own polls. And it doesn't mention anything about radical black anti-Semitism, about Farrakhan, Congressman Corey Bush, Jamal Bowman, and other black congressmen who are viciously anti-Semitic. It mentions nothing about that. This plan has made it almost impossible to condemn real anti-Semites for taking real anti-Semitic stands. It's a disgrace. But you know what's a bigger disgrace? That every Jewish group has praised this plan. And when they praise it, they praise uh, Biden for mentioning the IRA definition, which is a great definition, ignoring the fact that he adds watering down and making really almost worthless the IRA definition by mentioning the other Nexus and JDA and such definitions, which are not definitions of anti-Semitism at all. So I am really upset and ashamed that the ADL praised this, the American Jewish Committee praised it, American Jewish Congress, the Conference of Presidents has praised this, the Simon Wiesenthal Center has praised this, the Orthodox Union, the Chabad leaders have praised this, Agudath Israel has praised this, they've all praised it. This reminds me of when the Oslo groups were, were signed back in September of 1993. Every Jewish group praised it as saying this piece is at hand this is a great idea and here we have the same thing a terrible plan and virtually every jewish group praised it it is very frightening and very dangerous for american jews and all jews frankly
Well, it's not quite all groups that have praised it. I can also refer to the Republican Jewish Coalition. Who expressed but they're this. a Republican group. They're partisan political groups, so they don't yes. have credibility. Because, Even, because uh, they're a partisan group, they don't have credibility. The, the nonpartisan groups have all praised it, without exception. Well, you, you would say they have credibility, though, wouldn't you? The, the Except Z-Way. We are the only significant pro-Israel group that came out attacking it. I've been on Mark Levin's show condemning it. I was on Newsmax TV today condemning it. No one else has, has done so. It's a failure of Jewish leadership to confront Biden's terrible plan. And it's a condemnation of Deborah Lipstadt, the anti-Semitism czar, supposedly fighting for, to fight against anti-Semitism, who has profusely praised this as well. By the way, she is the, the same woman who compared the Trump administration and Trump himself to Nazis. Deborah Lipstadt. Is this who we should have had as the head of uh, anti-Semitism fighter? A woman who compared Donald Trump, the greatest friend Israel ever had, to Nazis? And that's what we have. She was a, a tragic appointment to have her fighting this, and she is profusely praising this terrible plan. World Jewish Congress President uh, Ronald Lauder expressed some criticism, though. He, he warned that the inclusion of a secondary definition in addition to the International Holocaust Amendment <laughs> <laughs> anti-Semitism is an unnecessary distraction from the real work that needs to be done. But listen to the words. He didn't condemn Biden. He didn't say this is outrageous. He's him for endorsing the IRA definition, which he barely did, and then said, but it's a distraction having the other one. Where is the criticism? Where's the condemnation? I don't see it, even from Ronald Lauder's uh, statement. There was, he should have attacked frontally Biden for including an outrageous, two, several outrageous definitions, which uh, say that all sorts of anti-Semitic acts are not anti-Semitism. Yeah, there is, um, as you um, are pointing out, um, a certain amount of confusion that's created by uh, referring to uh, different um, actions that are taken to confront anti-Semitism. I must admit that uh, the Nexus document is one that I wasn't aware of because uh, here in Australia there is opposition to, to IRA. There was some uh, by pro-Palestinian anti-Israel groups uh, celebrating the fact that when this announcement came out. There wasn't a, uh, a full endorsement of, of IRA. Perhaps you can explain um, what this other uh, Nexus document is and why uh, <laughs> this isn't something that should be supported. The Nexus document says that all sorts of positions that people or countries or politicians take is not really anti-Semitism. If you say I oppose Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state, they say that's not anti-Semitism. That's a political opinion. That's legitimate. Well, well, let me tell you, if you oppose the existence of the Jewish state, you hate Jews. If you oppose the existence of Italy, I assure you, you hate Italians. If you oppose the existence of Spain, you don't like Spanish people very much. And yet Nexus and JDA say this is not anti-Semitism. So when Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar make speeches, opposing Israel's existence, according to this new plan by uh, Biden, using the nexus definition, you can't really get away with saying that's anti-Semitism because Biden has said that the nexus definition is a valuable tool that we welcome and appreciate in defining anti-Semitism. In addition, nexus says, if you treat Israel differently from other countries, that's not anti-Semitism. If you condemn Israel for certain policies, but uh, but do not condemn 
monstrous policies by Iran and Russia and China and the Palestinian Authority, why are you only condemning Israel? That's anti-Semitism. And yet Nexus says it is not anti-Semitism. So this has vitiated our ability to call anti-Semitic people and anti-Semitic acts anti-Semites. It's a disgrace and a disaster. Now, there's another organization that um, is also uh, supporting the, the views that, that you have, but an organization called Stop Anti-Semitism. But they're a little tiny group. They're not a, you know, this is not a real organization. I have, you know, I have huge numbers of employees. I have, I have chapters all over the country. Yeah, this is a, a good group, small group of people who have opposed this as well. But we're the mainstream organizations. Where's ADL, APAC, AJ Committee, AJ Congress, B'nai B'rith, the Conference of Presidents, the Umbrella Group, the Reform Movement, the Conservative Movement. Where's the Orthodox Union, Agudath Israel, Chabad? Why are they all embracing this? The organizations that have real influence have said, this is a great plan, Mr. Biden, President. Thank you. Yeah, well, Kenneth Marcus, also the founder and chairman of the Louis Brandeis mm -hmm. Center mm -hmm. for Human Rights mm -hmm. Law, mm -hmm. took the same critical view of the plan because it said it didn't focus exclusively on the IRA <laughs> definition. But he didn't say, we yes. condemn President Biden for this. This is an outrage. Yes, he pointed out the nexus definition is a problem, but he praised their embracing the IRA definition. Well, they only mentioned it once in the, in the whole speech, only one time. He just wasn't critical. So tell me, uh, uh, what does what is embracing a definition mean? In Australia, when the IRA definition of working anti-Semitism on working anti-Semitism has been adopted, it's been adopted. We don't <laughs> use the word embraced, we use the word adopted. Is there, what's the difference? Is there any difference? Biden said, we have embraced, we have past tense, we have embraced the IRA definition. Anthony Blinken, two years ago, made positive statements about uh, the IRA definition. So Biden simply said, we have embraced it in the past. Uh, why didn't Biden say, we support and embrace it now as a legitimate definition of anti-Semitism? He didn't say that. And then he immediately went on to say, stronger words, we welcome and appreciate as valuable tools the nexus definition, which is definition at all. That definition allows anti-Semites and anti-Semitic actions to be legitimized. In the development of this uh, strategy, listening sessions were held with more than 1,000 diverse stakeholders across the Jewish community and beyond. And these sessions supposedly included Jews from diverse backgrounds and all denominations. Was your organization involved? No, we were not involved. They did not ask us our opinions because we're the only significant Jewish group exposing how hostile the Biden administration has been to Israel. Virtually every appointment he's made, important appointment, to a post that affects Israel is someone hostile to Israel. Every one of them. Only this week, Biden has pressured Bibi Netanyahu to not pass a law that reduces dramatically the amount of outside money can come in to sponsor and financially support organizations very hostile to Israel. But Biden has told Bibi, if you want to meet with me, you better stop this law. And Bibi succumbed. He stopped the law. Even though we have a Taylor Force Act, which restricts aid to the Palestinians as long as they have a policy of paying Arabs lifetime pensions to murder Jews, for God's sakes, President Biden has increased the amount that they used to get several years ago, the Palestinian Authority, from 500 million. He now gives them 800 million despite the Taylor Force Act. He gets around it with using terms like you know, human, humanitarian aid. So he funds Israel's enemies. 
He has never criticized the Palestinian Authority publicly that I'm aware of. Only this past week, Mohammed Shteya, the prime minister of the Palestinian Authority, praised by name the Arab terrorists who have murdered these three women, a mother and two daughters on the road, praised the others who have murdered Jews recently. There's no criticism by Biden for this outrage. There's no statement by Biden, we're going to stop funding if you continue making statements like that. And I believe that President Obama, behind the scenes, is a factor in advising President Biden how to react and respond to Israel. And virtually none of the Jewish groups have publicly criticized Biden for even these few things that I just mentioned. They ignore it. And by the way, yes, he had many groups advising him on this plan, this anti-Semitism plan. Every one of them pleaded with him to adopt solely and fully the IRA definition. And he didn't do it. He adopted it in part, but then added these, these horrific definitions. And yet virtually none of them, certainly the major ones, didn't say a single negative thing about that. Ken Marcus and Ron Lauder expressed concern about it, but didn't condemn him for it. And the others didn't even say a word. Where's the Anti-Defamation League who's supposed to be fighting anti-Semitism? That's their sole priority. That's why people give them money and they praise what Biden just did, embracing a definition that legitimizes anti-Semitic acts and people. It's a shanda. Are there problems, according to the First Amendment in America, to uh, introduce something like the IRA definition of working anti-Semitism? Is that the reason why uh, <laughs> they've, they've hedged away from adopting it? Because it really uh, will... will <laughs> no, no, no. People are allowed to be anti-Semitic. They can hate Jews. But we have to define precisely how you determine if someone is an anti-Semite, whether his or her actions are anti-Semitic. It doesn't make it illegal, but we have to be able to publicly humiliate and criticize the Rashida Tlaibs and Ilan Omars and Betty McCollum's of this world. That's what this definition does. It does not preclude them or prevent them from saying anything they want. Yes. Can I quote you um, what was said by the American Zionist movement, which is your uh, umbrella organization? They said they have a long-standing policy of endorsing the IRA definition of anti-Semitism, and we are heartened that the administration continues its support of the IRA definition. As the convening body of Zionist <laughs> organizations in the United States, we have increasingly seen that anti-Zionism is currently one of the most prevalent forms of anti-Semitism in America and around the world. We see this report as a key governmental instrument to help us fight anti-Zionism and all forms of anti-Semitism. Now, the American <laughs> Zionist movement, as I said, is the organization to which you are affiliated. The roof body say this. Why won't you be withdrawing your the thing is, in order to run in the World Zionist Congress elections, you have to be a member of the American Zionist movement. So that's why we can't leave or we won't be able to run. But what she said is really astonishing because what Biden has embraced is the nexus definition that says anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. And she just praised Biden for embracing the IRA definition, ignoring the fact that he said a valuable tool we must consider that we appreciate and welcome is the nexus definition that says anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. Wow. This is Amy Spitalnik, I think, who said this. What she said makes no sense. And in fact, is, is dangerously ignoring the truth of what this plan is about. She and others are simply trying to appease the Biden administration, be on their good side, so they can be invited to meetings and to parties and to, uh, and to events at the White House, as opposed to 
taking a stand with integrity and truth and saying this, Mr. President, is unacceptable. We don't accept what you've just done. By the way, another aspect of watering down the unique aspect of anti-Semitism, which has endured for thousands of years, is that in this plan, they say we must also fight Islamophobia, homophobia, transphobia, all these other uh, issues, which has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. That shouldn't be in here. That reduces the uniqueness of anti-Semitism and reduces the focus that we must be fighting anti-Semitism. Of all the religious hate acts in America, 63% are anti-Jewish hate acts. Two-thirds are anti-Jewish. Only 14% of religious hate acts are committed against Muslims. 14%. So he should be focusing entirely at this moment on anti-Semitism and not water it down with discussions about Islamophobia, transphobia, homophobia. He can talk about it another time, not here. Now, just for your information, in Australia, we um, have a lot of professed concerns about racism. Of course, uh, anti-Semitism is, uh, is part, of, part of racism. And one of the universities, when it adopted uh, a consideration that it should be dealing with uh, anti-Semitism, had to appease the other side by also uh, agreeing to uh, be fighting uh, Islamophobia. That's uh, it's like uh, just focus on anti-Semitism. They say, oh, well, you're coming for the Jews, but what about everybody else? Well, as I said, in America, two-thirds of all religious hate crimes are against Jews. A small percentage are against Muslims. <laughs> so Muslims are simply not enduring anywhere near the level of uh, hatred and physical actions uh, that the Jews are enduring in America. Jews in Brooklyn, LA, Muncie, New Jersey are being attacked in the streets by people, physically attacked when they look like they're Jewish. No, primarily that's the Hasidic Jews since it's very clear that they're Jewish when they're walking the streets. This doesn't happen to Muslims. Anti-Semitism is a unique problem that's, that's uh, overwhelming uh, when it comes to hate crimes. Muslims don't have anywhere near the problems that Jews do. That's why the problem that Jews are having with anti-Semitism should be uniquely focused and not watered down with other issues. If the president or others or in Australia want to make an issue about the other problems, that should be done separately, not aligned with anti-Semitism. Yeah, a, lot of, a lot of it's emanating from the uh, black community in, in America, uh, and that's uh, got historical roots. There's a problem, isn't there, if you um, point the finger too, too much at these uh, communities that you'll end up uh, creating uh, uh, a kind of a, a battle between communities that could uh, bring things out uh, in a more inflammatory sense than, than, than they are. And they're trying to sort of quieten uh, things to some degree to not cause too much racial tension to come out into the open. Would you say that's the strategy? Did you hear my question? Get the gist of it. Could you repeat it, please? Isn't there a, a, a strategy to not point uh, the finger too much at these other communities, like the black community in particular, that's got um, a lot of uh, historical connections to <laughs> anti-Semitism uh, going way back? Uh, if, if you keep um, highlighting them, doesn't that uh, seem, tend to um, cause more antagonism between the two communities that could worsen the situation? I heard your question. No, the only way you're going to fight <laughs> hatred and bigotry is to uh, confront it directly, 
with truth and integrity and not be afraid of saying what's true. So I believe it is very important to respectfully say what's true, making it clear when you criticize a certain group, you don't mean every member of that group. You don't mean even the necessarily the majority of that group. But you should say that, that there are problems with certain groups when in fact there is. If you ignore it, you'll have no chance of trying to reduce or eliminate the bigotry from different communities, from certain communities. So I don't agree that we should ignore it, uh, worrying that it will exacerbate the problem. Mm. I think ignoring it will exacerbate the problem and it will allow it to flourish and, uh, and, and multiply. All right, so to sum up uh, with you, Mort, uh, this uh, document and strategies come out, um, that hopefully isn't the end of the story, With although there's been a lot of positive reactions. So is there any um, chance, do you think, of the uh, Biden administration strengthening this document? And I believe that there are aspects of it that are positive. There's not a chance in the world there's, there's not a chance in the world that they will retract or strengthen it. But you have the 25 major Jewish groups, including uh, profusely praising it, including the Orthodox groups. Then there is no pressure on Biden and his administration to change anything because everyone has said, you're wonderful. Thank you for so much for what you've done. The Jewish organizations have exhibited a dr dramatic failure of leadership, of integrity and of courage to confront the fact that this plan is dangerous to Jews and does not fight anti-Semitism in a serious way. In fact, it legitimizes uh, anti-Semites and anti-Semitism in a significant way. So now I, until the Jewish organizations and until Deborah Lipstadt, the anti-Semitism czar, will criticize what has just transpired, there's no chance it'll change. It's a failure of Jewish leadership to attempt to appease the president of the United States. Well, thank you for your strong words today. Mort, uh, we'll uh, put it out there for people's consideration and I uh, appreciate you giving us uh, your time to talk about uh, the significant issue. Well, I'm, I'm glad I had the opportunity. I, I hope there'll be Jewish leaders in Australia that'll speak out against this because if there's a deterioration and an increase in anti-Semitism in America, this will ultimately impact Australian Jews and European Jews as well. So Australian and European Jews should be speaking out against this plan by Biden, this terrible plan. So I urge all, everyone, all the people of Australia, Jews and non-Jews, to speak out against it. You don't fight anti-Semitism, embracing a definition that legitimizes anti-Semitism and Israel bashing. This has got to change. We at ZOA are going to keep fighting it. And by the way, your audience can look us up at zoa.org, zoa.org. You'll see our entire statement as to why this was a horrendous plan by the Biden administration. We've just been listening to Mort Klein, the national president of the Zionist Organization of America, criticizing some of the alarming, harmful aspects of the Biden administration's just released national strategy to counter anti-Semitism. Professor Ned Lazarus is a conflict resolution scholar, practitioner and evaluator who has conducted evaluative studies of peacebuilding initiatives on behalf of USAID, USIP, the European Union and the US Department of State. His doctoral dissertation traces the long-term impact of peace education participation amongst more than 800 Israeli and Palestinian Seeds of Peace participants from adolescence through adulthood. Before entering the academic field, Ned served from 1996 till 2004 as the Middle East Program Director for Seeds of Peace.
I'd like to welcome Professor Ned Lazarus to the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio, coming to you from Melbourne, Australia. Thank you so much, David. It's a pleasure to speak to uh, your audience virtually, and uh, I, I really hope to get there in person someday. All right. You just made your confession that you haven't visited our wonderful country yet. Well, let's see what happens on that score. You you wrote uh, quite a... Uh, an important paper, a future for Israeli-Palestinian peace building, which mm-hmm. was done for BICOM, British Israel Communications and Research Centre, back in 2017. And uh, there's an excellent uh, video of that out there with uh, Alan Johnson introducing it uh, from BICOM. So how much of what you wrote in 2017, and everybody who's interested can go and see uh, the paper that's that you wrote, which is... Mm-hmm quite extensive. Uh, how, how much of what you wrote back then is still applicable? And how much progress has there, there been along the lines of uh, what you were suggesting in your report? Almost all of it remains applicable. At the time, I, f- I found a, at least 164 different organizations working in uh, peace building, whether between Israelis and Palestinians or Arabs and Jews in Israel. That number, first of all, is, a, is an estimate. There are probably a good number of others that I simply didn't find during my research, but that's a minimum number. These things evolve. Some of those organizations may not be working anymore. Some of them have changed. New ones have sprouted up. The fact that this is a diverse and a dynamic and a, a persistent field that continues this work, even in the very difficult times that we're living in, in terms of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, that is a, a, every bit as true. So a few a few examples. Uh, one, of course, is Seeds of Peace. They're celebrating their 30th anniversary. Just today, I saw in my Facebook a post by an Israeli alum, alumnus of Seeds of Peace from the first group, the 1993 delegation from Israel. His name is Ariel Margalit. He is a uh, journalist, a prominent journalist. He's a newscaster for I-24 News. Uh, and he was writing in to his fellow 1993 Seeds of Peace original participants saying, let's do something. We're, we've all come a long way now in our careers. And I, let's let's see if we can come up with some projects to, to have an impact in our region. So he, he's reaching out to friends that he made 30 years ago, and he's still uh, they're still very meaningful to him. And he's a prominent media figure in Israel now. So I think he's, uh, you know, that's just a, one snapshot. There are many many other examples. I won't even be able to say all all of them, but one that I uh, certainly always point to is an organization that's called Hand in Hand. It is a network of integrated bilingual schools, so Arabic and Hebrew, that is growing in Israel. Uh, Their largest campus is in Jerusalem. That's a K-12 campus. Uh, And I believe they're now at seven other schools in the country and growing steadily. Their curriculum is very interesting, very impressive. The younger groups have both an Arabic-speaking and a Hebrew-speaking teacher in every classroom. And then when they get to secondary education, it's assumed that the students can learn in either language. uh, And so they have just one teacher. They also teach very challenging content, and they don't shy away from talking about the conflict. They teach during the month where you have both Yom HaShoah, the Holocaust Remembrance Day, uh, Yom Ha'atzma'ut, the Israeli Independence Day, and then Yom HaZikaron, the uh, Memorial Day for Israel's uh, uh, fallen soldiers and victims of terrorism. The schools observe all of those, as well as 
the Land Day, which is on March 30th, which is a, a day when Arab citizens of Israel remember uh, demonstrators who were killed demonstrating uh, against land confiscation. Uh, and it's become sort of a national holiday for the Palestinian Arab minority in Israel. And on May 15th, they remember the, the Nakba, the Palestinian dispossession in the 1948 war. So this is all very controversial stuff, of course. And in many other places, people can't even hear those words or be in the say, you know, be in the room where someone is talking from one of those sides or the other. In this school, everyone is there. The, the Arabs don't have to participate. Let's say they don't have to observe the Independence Day ceremony in the sense of participating in it themselves, but they have to be there. They have to respect it. They have to listen. They have to learn the content and the same way around. So everyone learns at, uh, everything and everyone listens and, and becomes very aware. Those schools are fascinating. I think they're very bold in, in what they're doing. And they're also growing in popularity. That's very impressive. And it, But it also, to me, it tells me something that even as we certainly do see trends, very disturbing trends in parts of each society of more hostile attitudes, of racism, of you know, anti-Semitism, of these kinds of uh, very, very hardening attitudes. At the same time, there are large parts of each society that I think are not moving in that direction and even are looking for something different because of that polarization that they see around them. They want something different. That's one that I think is very important. There, there are so many many different kinds of organizations. There are those that are more political and focus on protest. There are those that focus on sort of advocacy around particular issues, lobbying and informing policy. There are some fantastic environmental peace building organizations. So one is called Echo Peace Middle East. One is the, another is the Arava Institute for Environmental Studies, doing amazing work, emphasizing always the clear truth that problems of environment, of energy, uh, of pollution. Those are those are shared problems, and they're also shared interests. Those problems don't stop at the, at any border or checkpoint. They are shared by Jordanians, Israelis, Palestinians, uh, who share that small area and fragile, in many ways, the ecosystem, desert, uh, much of it a, a arid ecosystem. Also recognizing the important things that Israel has to contribute through its technological development, through desalination, through drip irrigation, through all of these different techniques that Israel has developed to make a, a sustainable lifestyle and to increase the availability of water. So those organizations and their work has contributed directly to things that we've seen recently, such as the agreement between Israel and Jordan financed by the U United Arab Emirates, I think through you know sort of an offshoot of the Abraham Accords, a win-win exchange of Jordanian solar energy for Israeli desalinated water. Those organizations have long been advocating for, for changes uh, of that kind. And on many different issues, that's only just one example. So there, there really are, I think, when you get closer to the ground and see what different organizations are doing, you really do see impact. You really do see influence. Again, it needs to be understood. This is a complex reality. There are many other things going on and the negative trends from my, my point of view certainly are also very strong. It's within that reality that these things are happening. To me, it makes them more important because they're in some cases working against the tide. You've stated, Ned, that for models of Israeli-Palestinian peacebuilding to be successful, they need to be scaled up and receive significant long-term investment if the conditions conducive to peace are to be achieved in the Israeli-Palestinian arena. 
So these organisations that you've been describing, are they getting enough funding to be uh, as viable as they could be? There has been a significant achievement in, in that aspect. Certainly when I wrote the report, the answer would be most of the time, no. I have often said, when people ask me, they say, well, this this kind of grassroots stuff, this civil society stuff, it must not be working because look at the conflict getting worse. Look at Hamas. Look at the rise of the hardline far right in Israel. This can't be working. What I say is it's not that it's not working. It's just there's not enough. It's uh, when you when you go down to it, there are many examples of organizations that work. Of course, not all of them. Not, it's not magic. There are many challenges. There are organizations that fail, but the, but there are many very successful and important examples the question of scale that you're asking, that's that's a key. So fu- funding, uh, typically, uh, and I, I did some research that's in the, the Biocom report, certainly is very small uh, compared to, for example, the Northern Ireland uh, peace process. I looked at this and found uh, in Northern Ireland, there were funds such as the International Fund for Ireland, uh, and uh, the uh, European Union had a dedicated fund uh, for the Northern Ireland peace process, just those two funds together. There were there were many others, but just those two funds together represented more than six times the funding uh, uh, that I had, you know, found for all of the peace building organizations in Israel uh, and the Palestinian territories for more than twenty years. So, in a single year, Northern Ireland, which is a is a much smaller area, in Northern Ireland, there are uh, around two million people, uh, and of course. Uh, you know, the Israeli population is pushing 10 million now. Uh, the Palestinian population, you know, between five and six million per capita. It's it's uh, a huge difference. One thing I'm glad to say, there's a, a an umbrella organization called the Alliance for Middle East Peace. ALMEP is its uh, acronym that for many years has been trying to uh, increase support for the field particularly in the United States, through many years of dedicated lobbying and research and evaluation, uh, of which my, my research uh, you know, is a part. There was established uh, in 2020 a fund, a U.S.-based fund, which they're hoping to grow into an international fund, modeled on what happened in Northern Ireland. With uh, their first five years, they're, gonna, they're giving $50 million in grants to peacebuilding organizations in Israel and, uh, and Palestine. That fund, it's uh, the acronym is MEPA. The MEPA fund uh, is a very important turning point in the field, and it might establish much more of the kind of sustainable funding that allows you to build long term. From your report, the BICOM report, uh, you have a picture of an organization called Combatants for Peace. There's also another organization, uh, a bit similar, uh, Parents Circle Families Forum. Yes. Do you believe these provide good examples for conflict resolution? Personally, I, I know many of the members and uh, leaders, current or former, uh, of those organizations. My wife, Nahani Rouse, uh, uh, produced a documentary called Encounterpoint in 2005, which uh, followed very closely some of the leaders of the uh, Parent Circle organization. So I, I, I should certainly say that I, when, I, when I speak about them personally there, many of them are friends and uh, also people that I admire. I think that their, uh, their work is very important. I think that uh, both of those organizations, particularly combatants for peace, uh, take a more uh, political line, a line that would be seen as you know, radical or off-putting, uh, no, no doubt, uh, to uh, uh, some in, in the audience. 
But I do think something that's important about both of those organizations is that when you look at the personal stories of the people involved, so one of the organizations, the Bereaved Families Forum, these are all Israelis or Palestinians who have lost a first-degree family member, uh, a member of their family, to vi the violence uh, from the other side of the conflict has been killed. You know, if they're Israeli, they've lost someone to Palestinian violence. If they're Palestinians, they've lost someone to Israeli violence. And I think that certainly what what they do, working together, engaging in dialogue, building relationships, trying to stand for nonviolence, is remarkable. I know that not not all people who have lost someone are are able to do that or willing to do that or you know that, that there are many different ways that one might respond with that un, unthinkable pain any of them should be respected but i certainly very much am uh, uh, admire them personally for uh the work that they've done uh and also for the way that they've built their organizations into into much larger they, they have really scaled up the other group are called combatants for peace so these are former soldiers if they're israeli or former members of militant organizations, if they're Palestinian, who are taking a public statement, they do not see violence as the way forward. I certainly understand that that's a radical, that that's a that's a radical stand for many people. Uh, that's not uh, what the majority uh, in either group right now uh, uh, would identify with. Uh, but I very much respect them for also for uh, doing that. These are people. These are not naive people. These are not people who don't understand the violence of the conflict, the pain of the conflict. These are people who have suffered, who have participated. They, these are these are people speaking from uh, the depth of their experience. And I, I certainly think that they're deserving of, uh, uh, of respect and uh, being heard. They do something which I, I know is also can be quite controversial. So these two organizations, and you, you may have heard of this, uh, in recent years have have begun holding uh, a joint Memorial Day observance in which they, they hold a Memorial Day observance for victims of the conflict, both Israeli and Palestinian. It is certainly understood, and I can certainly understand how that uh, is very controversial and is very is seen, you know, is not understandable as for 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 many people uh, in Israeli society uh, and in the Palestinian society. So the participants from both groups are criticized very heavily by their own societies for being willing to recognize the victimhood on the other side. Every year when they hold that ceremony, they apply for permits for the Palestinians to come to the central ceremony, which is usually, I think, in Tel Aviv. Every year, someone in the government typically says, we will not give these permits because they don't like what they're doing. And every year, eventually, it goes to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says, listen, there's no security rationale. You've already said this is a political reason. You don't like what they're doing. If they pass the security check, and it's a very strict security check, as it needs to be, unfortunately, if people pass that very strict security check, this happens each year. It's almost a ritual part of, part, part of the uh, observance that happened again this, this year, and eventually the Palestinians do receive permits. People have sort of maybe, you know, two different reactions to that. And for some, uh, some Israelis and Palestinians, it's unthinkable. I don't understand how you can equate their pain with ours. They're the people who, who have caused our pain. I can certainly understand that point of view. If you can see the humanity, the loss, and, the, and also if you can acknowledge that there are many innocent victims on the other side, even with the belief that your side is doing the right thing and is trying not to cause innocent uh, uh, casualties, uh, 
that this happens, that this is part of this conflict at this at this time. If people are able to recognize that, I, I think you can find uh, at least inspiration in these people's willingness to uh, to really recognize in a deep way each other's humanity and the, and the loss that's caused by the uh, ongoing violence. Now, again, I want to be very clear. I am also not I'm not a naive person. Maybe I was when I, you know, more when I was an idealistic uh, young person starting this work, but it's been uh, many decades since. I read public opinion polls, both Palestinian and Israeli, and I see what's happening in politics. On both sides right now, there isn't the groundwork for a political agreement. Both sides are actually too internally divided. There couldn't be, I don't think there could be a leader who could represent enough of a critical mass and try to resolve the, the issues of the conflict. And on the Palestinian side, unfortunately, I, I think the future is very unclear. It's very unclear what will happen after Mahmoud Abbas. He's extremely unpopular. He hasn't held an election in 15 years. Hamas as the, the leading competitor. Uh, so we we are certainly, you know, and, and also the recent Palestinian public opinion polls for someone who's seeking peace and nonviolence are are very disheartening. Following on from what you've just been saying, Ned, there's uh, a case that's uh, happening right as we speak in Australia where we have the visit of an Israeli, uh, Rami Al-Hanan, and mm. uh, his partner, Palestinian Basim Aramin. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of these. these two I, I've, I've, I've met them. You've been highlighting that there are problematical aspects to their liaison. Uh, I um, I think one of the problems here is that they've been accepted in Australia by uh, Jewish organisations with open arms. They've uh, seems to have put aside uh, completely the fact that uh, Basim spent seven years in jail for uh, acts that he committed against uh, Israelis. Uh, Rami Elhanan is... Uh, has been reported here on our media, in particular by our ABC, as referring to the members of uh, combatants for peace as being ex-Israeli war criminals. What Basim says uh, that basically he and his uh, close friend Rami Elhan, they are um, partners in hate because they both hate Israel's occupation. Now, this is as you as you would say these. These guys have a, a valid position to present as part of organisations like uh, Combatants for Peace, but they have been brought here, I think, naively by some organisations and they've been taken to Jewish schools, implanted in front of kids who are very impressionable. Now, I think this is where we start uh, perhaps to be crossing the line, uh, that uh, they're presenting views, I think, which many might consider to be illusory, and uh, in speaking to very young, impressionable minds uh, can be quite dangerous. Uh, perhaps people who are of a left-wing persuasion think this is good. They're going to be converting young people to be for a solution which is uh, very much uh, prepared to, to give a lot to the other side. So can you see what I'm, I'm getting at here? That the, Perhaps we are getting too close to the line here. First of all, I know Bassam and uh, and Rami both, and have a lot of respect for both of them. Again, as people who have suffered so much, who very courageously work together and uh, and recognize again the humanity of the other side. For me, that's the most important point about both of them. I didn't know that that quote 
uh, from uh, Rami that you mentioned. And so it's, that doesn't mean that I would necessarily agree with all of their views. Certainly understand, again, it's an enormously charged issue. I teach about it on a university campus in the United States. I know that uh, there's there can sometimes be a disconnect also between uh, the kind of rhetoric that is perfectly uh, acceptable in Israel, where the debate is very, uh, very sharp, uh, and people express their opinions very forcefully. So the kinds of language and terms that are, you know, people use in Israel, which can be quite harsh, but that's, I think that's accepted there are often uncomfortable for us in the diaspora, uh, where there's much, there's a, you know, a greater degree, there's a sensitivity to anti-Semitism or to very extreme anti-Israel rhetoric that we, that we deal with in the diaspora. And so sometimes I do agree that sometimes there's a disconnect between the way that people who are, who live in Israel and are part of Part of sort of that political conflict, the you know the rhetoric that they will use there uh, can be very uncomfortable for us outside, and also can seem counter you know productive um, for some of the struggles that we have uh, uh, in the diaspora to build positive identity for young Jews. I don't know, you might not like what I teach in my university class. I, I want young Jewish people and and the young people that I teach of any kind to be able to see. Uh, Israelis and Palestinians in full humanity uh, uh, to be able to understand the very complex uh, and and painful political realities of the conflict. Also, to understand that those are, that's not the sum total of who Israelis are or who Palestinians are. They are people with culture, with music, with uh, you know, with all, every other uh, aspect, and quite vibrant. And they're people who have relationships with each other, despite every, despite everything. I think the different lens that I that I have. On groups like the 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 parents circle and and combatants for peace, but again, they're 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 friends of mine, and so that's uh, that's part of why the relationship that they've created with each other for me, I think, is a, is an inspiring thing and is an important thing to see, even even if their their political views or and again, there's a range of political views in each organization. Particularly, the parents circle has has people of many different uh, political views. Uh, even even when their political views are challenging, unpalatable, or even you completely disagree with them, I, I do think that the relationship that they've built with each other, to me, that's that's uh, very very important and very very valuable, and 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 it's worth seeing that. Even if you want to clarify, you want to say, okay, I don't dis- I disagree completely with this statement. I don't think that that represents the reality in the right way, but I do think that it remains very important. Uh, to see Israelis and Palestinians who uh, have a deep relationship, who have lost everything and committed to a way of peace with each other. Again, I can see the the controversy. Sometimes it can be helpful if you can have a range, if you can have a range of views, or if you can prepare people and say, you're going to hear some things that are going to be controversial, they're going to be hard to hear. You don't have to agree with that, but li- listen to it and just try to understand why. I th- that's always the best thing. Why? Why does someone... I uh, think that way. There are exceptions, you know, for deeply, obviously, for the kind of, you know, anything that's deeply anti-Semitic uh, or racist or based on that kind of caricature, you know, uh, hatred or caricature. Obviously, that's not that's not a point of view that needs to be legitimized. I don't think that Bassam or uh, Rami, as extreme as some of the things they say may sound, I don't think that they. Uh, I, I would never put them in that category at all. Uh, the, the only thing you didn't really uh, cover off in what you were, were saying is uh, is the fact that these people are put in front of children. Now, I think that uh, 
you leave in your university course you're not teaching children the children no are... no i'm teaching i'm teaching oh. young adults you know decisions like that about the the appropriate age those are important questions i i think that's you know schools and institutions do need absolutely do need to consider what their values are what their pedagogical goals are i would say that if in some of the schools if they have a very strong basis of education about Israel about the conflict i think it's fine for people to hear different views uh wh whether they're uh, some of the right wing views or left wing views uh but to be exposed to that you know let's say high school students if they've got a strong grounding if they've had an education i think then that that's the for me that's the idea of the education is that you can hear the voices and the discordant realities no matter what your political point of view is we can all see that there is a violent conflict there we can all see that there are very painful and problematic things happening there that there is a separation barrier that there are checkpoints that there is terrorist violence these none of those things are things that we want and i don't think those are things that most israelis want and i don't think those are things that most palestinians want being able to recognize that reality and think about it in a grounded way uh, and understand i think that's an important thing for me education should help build young people who can do that now on the other hand if you're talking about audiences where people have no you know very little background uh, on the conflict and very little understanding yes i could say i i think that that i could understand feeling that it's not it's not right to introduce this point of view as the only point of view again if you show a diversity of points of view i think that that also can 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 be helpful well, thanks very much for your comments i think people will as you say agree or disagree and they're very welcome to i'm actually um a former parent of uh, children who went to the a school here in uh, melbourne there's one of the schools that uh, has been hosting uh, rami alhanan and basam aramin i'm very keen to find out from them actually how the sessions went and whether there's going to be disclosure of uh of the mm -hmm. things that that were held at the, at the school uh for people who are out there uh, who expressed some concern over perhaps what uh, might have gone on at the school i thank you very much for your time today and presenting views that are very significant for us to consider the only way we're going to get out of this conflict is uh, by looking at means of uh, resolution and at the moment there's a dearth of them so yeah. we we need we need to be doing something. Yeah. Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.